Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Three one pitch, swing and a drive. Deep to right field, way up there, way out of here. Goodbye baseball. Eight strikeouts for the King tonight and make it 23 consecutive scoreless innings for three called on the outside corner and there it is. It's time for the Seattle Mariners baseball podcast. Kyle Seeger. Here's your host, Gary Hill. Here we go. Seattle Mariners baseball podcast at Mariners Pod. Thanks for being here once again. Wow. That was, if you go back to the moment before Diaz gave up the walk-off home run two nights ago, and then the following, the next day of the day game, if you take that snapshot a few hours, that was a really rough few hours for the Mariners. A rough few hours in what was a very difficult road trip for the Mariners. So I uh, I hope you don't mind. I'm not going to examine the last two games very closely. We'll have a couple of highlights coming your way. We'll talk about it a little bit. We'll hear from Scott's service, and then we'll move forward. Off day today for the Mariners, and good timing for an off day. And then in the podcast tomorrow, we'll get you ready for what will be an enormous homestand. Calendar turns to September, September call-ups. The Mariners will reset, regroup, and try and go after it at home when the calendar flips on Friday with the Angels coming in. Again, we'll talk about that a little more in depth coming up in the podcast tomorrow. In this one, it's going to be a fun one. So, coming up, Pat Vendetti, of course, a Seattle Mariner, the switch pitcher, a conversation with him with Shannon Dreyer, which I think you'll enjoy. Also, Aaron Goldsmith chatted with Tom Grieve, who's been in baseball for a long, long time, player, executive, broadcaster. He's he's done it all. And it's a really good conversation about When he was a rookie, he played for Ted Williams. So he has some interesting stories about Ted Williams, which I think leads us perfectly into probably my favorite piece of audio that I play on the podcast. I do it once a year. I don't think I've done it this year yet. Maybe I have. I don't think I have, but usually once a year. And I play the conversation between Dave Niehaus and Ted Williams. I know many of you have been longtime podcast listeners, have heard this conversation before. So I hope you enjoy it again, but we get new listeners all the time, so I know many people haven't heard this one yet. 
This is why I replay it once in a while, because it is fabulous. I just love it. Dave Niehaus chatting with Ted Williams. So that comes up in a few minutes as well. But you go back to a couple days ago, Mariners in position to take the middle game of the series, and then with Felix on the hill the next day, things were looking pretty good. Looking pretty good in the eighth inning when the Amps took the lead. The pitch on the way. Swing and a fly ball into center field. To his right is Desmond. He's there. We'll make the catch. Tagging at third is Smith heading home. The throw to the plate is not in time. It's up the third baseline. Robinson Cano with a sacrifice fly. And the Mariners have the lead. Seven to six here in the top of the eighth inning. And everybody moves up the base. So they took the lead. Diaz was on in the eighth. And then the ninth, trying to complete a two-inning save, but it would not be. 2-2 pitch. Swing and a fly ball into center field and deep. Martin to the warning track near the wall. Leaps up. Goodbye baseball. Rudetto Dorr with a walk-off two-run home run. Here in the bottom of the ninth inning, the Rangers win it 8-7. Old Dorr. Straightaway center, his 25th home run of the year with Beltre aboard. He's mobbed by his teammates. So hearts ripped out as the Mariners lose the middle game. And then yesterday, day baseball, just trying to avoid the sweep at the hands of the Texas Rangers. And it was a good start, including some history. The 3-2 to Odor and a swing and a miss for strike three. That is strikeout number three on the afternoon. And now Felix has the record. That is career strikeout number 282 against the Texas Rangers. And now he moves by Roger Clements and Mickey Lolich. He has more strikeouts than any pitcher in the history against the Rangers. So he has struck out the most Rangers in history. He has struck out the most Angels in history. For the A's, and this is Oakland A's, not Kansas City. For Oakland A's, he has the fifth most, and he's getting closer and closer to the top. The Astros, not so close. He has actually only faced the Astros eight times, which is kind of odd. He has 50 strikeouts. He's got a long ways to go to try and get to the top of the Astros list, but everyone else in the division, he, he is up there. Number one, number one, and number five. It's pretty impressive stuff. But from there, it was all Texas. A grand slam along the way. Felix gets chased as Texas piles on. Uh, scoreless in the first two innings, but a five-run fourth inning making the difference. And it was just bombs away from there. Home runs, base hits, runs, the whole thing. Felix only goes four innings, gives up six runs. And the Rangers win game three, 14-1. to one. They sweep aside the Mariners. The M's 68 and 65 after the loss. The Rangers 80 and 54 in control in the division. Here's what Scott Service had to say about the game and the series. Yeah, uh, it was. It was a rough day on the mound. Uh, obviously, um, you know, a couple walks and then another you know, grand slam. You know, got got Felix and he ended up throwing 40, 40 some pitches that inning. Um, so, you know, had to get him out of there. And then, you know, the bullpen after that, you know, Texas aggressive team, they're, they're swinging. And when they got a lead like that, they, they certainly don't back off. And a couple of those walks looked like it could have easily gone the other direction. Very easily, yeah. Um, 
you know, strike zones are strike zones, and, and um, you know, but there, there, there were a lot of close pitches, and no doubt, and you know, and then made a mistake, and, and, and Gomez made him pay. Sharp in last month, is it was he a little off today? Or? Uh, a little bit. I thought his stuff early on was fine. Um, you know, maybe not uh, you know, the command of the changeup a little bit, but you know, it, it's it does happen once in a while. We certainly hope for a better outing today. Um, you know, keep it tight and, and see where we went from there. So, um, you know, not our day. Uh, got out of hand late. You know, and that can happen in this ballpark once in a while. Hey, Anderson, Dejo at first. What would you say? I don't know. Um, certainly, Dejo was on the base in the right spot, and Elvis ran into him. Scott's going to rough run. you got 29 games left. Do you feel you got a run left in you? Oh, I, I definitely think we will certainly play better than we did on this trip. It was a rough trip. There's no doubt. Very disappointing. And, uh, you know, we knew it was going to be a challenging trip for us uh, with the pitching we were up against. And, and uh, But, you know, we got a couple decent starts on the trip, not a ton. Um, you know, a couple games that we probably would have been nice to hang on and win, but it didn't happen. So, you know, we got an off day tomorrow. August has been uh, a challenging month. It's been very, very good at times. Uh, and obviously it did not end on a, on a positive note. So we have not had many off days, maybe one this month. So uh, we're off tomorrow. We'll regroup. Uh, we'll have a couple extra guys here with September call-ups and, and see where we go from there. Scott, your main group of guys has been pretty resilient. Have you seen anything that says they won't be that way otherwise? No, we, we've bounced back. Um, you know, I think today's you know game was disappointing. We just didn't, didn't play well, uh, and that took it to us. But uh, uh, we we do we we have bounced back all year. Uh, we need we need you know starting pitching get deep. You know, we talked about it you know uh, since the beginning of the season. It, it helps line up our bullpen. But uh, we need to pick it up. No doubt, this has been a rough trip. Um, guys are down a little bit, rightly so. Uh, off day tomorrow, we'll come back and, and bring the energy that we need to have uh, and get out and play because. You know, the home stand's not going to be easy either. And the Angels are playing well, and then we see Texas again. So um, be challenging. Any the ejection? message to them going forward in this right now? Uh, enjoy the off day. We need to catch our breath, really. That yeah. can make a significant difference. Uh, it can, yeah. You know, just kind of, you know, get back home um, and, and uh, kind of get back in routine again. But, you know, nobody's happy. I mean, we're really disappointed. That, uh, when you can do about it, these games are over. We've got to put it behind us and, and look forward. And the ejection when you went out to talk to the umpire, what were you just trying to find out? You know, like for me, out of nowhere. I mean, there's no warning, there's nothing, and, and certainly we're not throwing at anybody there. So, um, you know, it's the umpire's call. So, that's, it is what it is. So, there it is. Tomorrow will be the regroup podcast. We'll talk about September, what to expect, where they're in the standings, everything coming up tomorrow as the Mariners return home off day today. So right now, Pat Vendetti, the newest Mariner, lefty, righty, switch pitcher, Shannon Dreher. Great conversation with him. Very interesting guy, very interesting pitcher. Here it is. Catching up with one of the newest Mariners, Pat Vendetti. And, Pat, we've seen you. I mean, obviously, when you came up last year, it seems like we saw you in almost every game that the Mariners played. Oakland, you saw quite a bit of the Mariners. But um, I wanted to give people a little bit of an opportunity to learn a little bit more about what you do. You don't run into an ambidextrous pitcher every day. And just kind of take me back. When did you first kind of realize that this was something you could throw with both arms? Yeah, I'm a natural right-hander. And uh, when I was three years old, my dad started to develop my left hand. And it's just one of those things where I continued to work with it. And, uh, you know, fortunately, things fell into place once I got into pro ball here and just kind of stuck with it. Why did your dad do that? It was just uh, one of those things where he thought, you know, if there can be switch hitters, why can't there be switch pitchers and 
Uh, he's just kind of a guy that thinks outside the box a little bit, and I'm very grateful he did because uh, I don't you know, have a great deal of velocity from either arm. So having this matchup advantage has really allowed me you know, to, to play this game for a long time. So you, you grew up that way, so it was pretty much normal, I would imagine, by the time you started playing organized baseball. Yeah, as normal as it can be for somebody who's not uh, ambidextrous. It really took a long time, probably until I was into my 20s, to where I really started to see some success from the left side. Um, you know, as far as feeling natural, now it does. Mm -hmm. um, but if I go to do other things left-handed, I can't really do any other things in life left-handed. So as far as being natural only on the baseball field. You know what, I think a lot of us have either had to, we've broken an arm or a wrist or something, and had to write with the other hand. Um, that's something we have to deal with for a short amount of time. You're saying it wasn't until you were in your 20s. What kept you with it? You know, I, just the love for the baseball game, the game of baseball. And, uh, you know, my dad had a big part of that too. Uh, you know, growing up, working out with him. And then, you know, once I got into high school, I really enjoyed playing the game. So once you get to that point, you, you just do whatever you can to keep playing at the next level. And, uh, Really, that, that approach is what, what's gotten to me here. So break us down, left and right, give us a self-scout. You know, left-handed, uh, it's, you know, what you see is what you get pretty much every day. Fastball slider um, is heavily what I rely on. I'll mix in a changeup every now and again. And then from the right side is where I mix in some different arm angles and other things. So I'll throw a fastball slider, change it from the side arm angle, and come up and throw, you know, a slider cutter type pitch and a fastball from up there. So, uh, you know, it's not exactly the same, and the velocities will differ. You know, low 80s from the left side, mid to upper 80s, right-handed. It's just uh, really two different pitchers. You get the opportunity with the Mariners. Obviously, they're in a push right now. What have the last couple of weeks been like, kind of trying to build up and be ready for this? Yeah, you know, I got that call on August 6th. I was in Pawtucket with uh, AAA with the Blue Jays and found out I was coming over here, and I knew that, uh, you know, there would be an opportunity for me if I went to Tacoma and performed well. Fortunately, I went into a great clubhouse there to a team that's performing, you know, they're, they're on top of the PCL. So uh, it was nice to get in there and help them win some ball games. And now with this opportunity, there's nothing like, uh, you know, that push for playoff baseball. We're on the outside looking in right now, but, you know, more than capable of uh, overcoming it this last month here. Yeah, lastly, how do you maintain everything on a daily basis? Do you have a regimented program with it, or is it something kind of a feel thing for you? You know, that it's, uh, I, I do have a, you know, a routine that I do daily as far as inside. And then as far as throwing goes, a lot of that is predicated on how much I'm pitching, how much I'm warming up. And, you know, when you're in the minor leagues, you have a little bit more leeway to maybe have days off. Whereas here, you know, I'm expected to be ready to pitch every day. So my throwing routine will vary depending on how I'm used. Are there days where you might be on on one and off on the other? You know, that just like any other pitcher, there's days where, you know, the left arm's on or the right arm's on. But, uh... You know, I do everything I can to try to make sure they're both on as much as possible. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a challenge. As long as you can keep it all straight, we're all good. <laughs> Pat, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And now it's Tom Grieve talking about what it was like playing for Ted Williams. Well, Tom, Ted Williams would turn 98 on this day, and you were 22 years old. You were a rookie with the Washington Senators, and Teddy Ballgame was your first manager in the big leagues. What are your memories of playing for one of the greatest of all time? Well, I remember it was a it was difficult for me because I grew up a Yankee fan, diehard Yankee fan, and Mickey Mantle was my favorite player. My father's favorite player was Ted Williams, and he would take my sister and me to a doubleheader either in Boston or New York every year, and it seemed like Ted Williams went 6 for 8 and Mickey Mantle went 0 for 8 every single time. So I grew up really not liking Ted Williams, <laughs> but still in awe of a player like that. And so for me, when I got to the big leagues and played for Ted Williams, it was 
at least a couple of weeks in spring training before I even felt comfortable talking to him because I just sat and kind of stared at him, couldn't believe I was in the same locker that he was in. What was he like as a manager? He didn't really want to manage. Bob Short talked him into managing. And so he, his heart was in hitting. He loved to talk hitting. But as far as managing, Wayne Terwilliger was our third base coach. And he allowed Twig to make all the calls during the game. If he wanted a bunt, hit and run, whatever it was. And there were plenty of times where a hit and run worked or a guy laid down a nice bunt and Ted jumped up off the bench and went, boy, Twiggy, good call, Twiggy. So he made no bones about it. So as a 22-year-old as a rookie, how much time did Ted Williams spend with you one-on-one talking about hitting? As much time as I was interested in. But I remember the first time he talked to me about hitting was in spring training. And it's hard to do on the radio, but he said, get in your batting stance, start your swing, and stop your swing where you think you make contact with the ball. So that's a concept I had never thought of before. And so quickly it came to mind, someone had said to me, hit the ball out in front of the plate. So I took my bat and went through the swing, kind of past the point where you could check your swing and have it call the ball. And he kind of looked and nodded his head and he said, tell you what, I want you to think about this for the next couple of days. And when you come up with a a little bit better answer, we'll have a point where we can start this conversation from. And so I knew that I didn't give the right answer. And I went around and asked several other players, and they didn't have the slightest idea either. Um, But, you know, there was no video back then. So it was just a concept that, as a hitter, I never thought of. You mentioned being a little intimidated as a rookie playing for Ted Williams, and I would think even a lot of veterans would probably be intimidated. Was this a conversation that you remember having with many of your teammates of just how to interact with Ted Williams? Yeah, he was—he was—he was kind of difficult to interact with. He was very sarcastic, um, but you could get him talking about fishing. He was one of the greatest fighter pilots during the war for five years. He knew the ins and outs of uh, photography. Mm. Uh, I always thought as smart, he was a brilliant guy that he could have been a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. That's the kind of intellect that he had. His, you know, his uh, personality might not have allowed him to do that. But as far as his intellect, he he definitely could have done that. But he he wasn't the kind of guy that you were comfortable going up just talking baseball with. It had to be, there had to be a reason. And generally it was about hitting. How did he take wins and losses? Was he a pretty emotional guy after a game? He couldn't understand why he he couldn't talk to the hitters on the Washington Senators and then the Texas Rangers and have all of us become 300 hitters. It, it just was a concept. He couldn't believe that we swung at the first pitch fastball and popped it up swinging late to right field. He couldn't believe that we couldn't look for a 2-0 and pitch and hit it hard every time. Um, it came so easy to him, and he was a brilliant teacher, but he didn't ever come to terms with the fact that he was dealing with a lot of very average major league hitters, <laughs> and no matter what he told us, uh, we were shooting to be 260 hitters, not 300 hitters. The game has changed offensively in so many ways today from when you broke in in the 1970s. If Teddy Ballgame was at the ballpark tonight watching baseball in 2016 from an offensive standpoint. What, what do you think he'd say about the game? I think he'd be shocked by how many strikeouts he sees uh, and the fact that a hitter today swings the same 
at an 0-2 pitch as he does a 3-1 pitch. There's no regard for, for the strikeout. I think that would be the first thing. I think he would be in awe of the power that the guys have, the physical attributes they have. The guys are bigger, stronger, faster. And the way probably that many hitters can hit the ball 390 to 400 feet the opposite way. Back when he played and when, when I played, only the big guys hit opposite field home runs. Now everybody does. So I think he would be in awe of the strength, but shocked by the, the approach that hitters have with two strikes. Tom, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for the time. Sure. Come back when you've got a half an hour. We'll talk a little <laughs> more. <laughs> and now Ted Williams himself with the great Dave Niehaus. Ted, first of all, uh, tonight the Mariners open a, a, a series against the Baltimore Orioles, and uh, Cal Ripken is 95 games away from one of the greatest records that they said would never be broken. Yeah. What is your perspective on, on Ripken's streak? Well, it's absolutely marvelous and sensational and tremendous. Uh, to play that many games without missing one, uh, I can't hardly conceive of it because I know that you can get a a blister on the wrong part of your hand and you can't play. Or you get a little broken little part of your finger and you can't hold the bat. And um, just so many things. You get hit in the elbow and you can't play. And uh, he's a big, strong guy and and is always in there and hell uh, is a great credit to this game. Your rookie year, 1939, was the year that Gehrig's streak of 2130 ended. What do you remember about the Iron Horse? Well, in spring training that year, why well, I had a in the clubhouse. We had a little clubhouse in Sarasota, and I could hear. And I was right close to the trainer's room, and I could hear all the old writers coming in, you know, and say, "Gary doesn't look good at all. Uh, you know, he uh, he he can't hit the ball, and he can't do this." And I said, "Well, what the hell? He's 38 years old. You know, he's he's probably over the hill." And of course, in those days, uh, I think ball players did quit a little bit earlier. They got the incentive to play longer now if they're making a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand or or a million. You know that incentive to play is even more uh, more prevalent. And so, uh, but anyway, uh, I saw Gehrig and I walked up the stairs up to the clubhouse, following him, because all the players went up to the Yankee side. Then they went over to their side of the dugout and. Uh, uh, I remember following him. I never actually met Gehrig, but I was, uh, I watched him and looked at him and everything, you know, and, uh, uh, well, he, if you compare his records with anybody, mm-hmm. well, he's right there and there's no way you can't say, boy, what a player. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing before I get into your career that, uh, it was, I was just awestruck. I don't know if you remember last year, we had a problem up here with the kingdom when the tiles fell and oh, yeah. Yeah. And we had to reassume the season at Fenway park in Boston. And, uh, I, I swear to God, when I die, I want my ashes put under the plate there. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, that particular series was picked up in Boston. Everybody was allowed to come in for $10. They had to open the, uh, the ballpark there on Yawkey Way a couple of yeah, hours before, yeah, and it yeah. was like lemmings uh, swimming to the sea when the kids tried to get those great seats. But at any rate, I remember on a Sunday afternoon after that final game, and I've always been in awe of that red seat out there 502 feet away from home plate. People 
in line, and they couldn't get them out of the ballpark. It almost brought tears to my eyes as as they waited just to sit in that red seat. Now, I was talking to either Joe Gelati or, yeah. or Peter Gammons or somebody like that, and he said, you know, when Ted hit that home run off Freddie Hutchinson, there was no seat there. There were bleachers. Is that true? No, uh, I think it is true. But they they had the seats numbered because the only way I could tell anybody or they could authenticate the actuality of it all was that this guy was sitting up there with a straw hat and the ball, he reached up the ball and the ball hit him in the hat and, and put a hole in, you know, kind of crushed it. And the next day, his picture was in the paper and they give the seat number and everything else, you know. So uh, Sullivan was there and I told him about that ball and I said, all you got to do is check the papers. They'll tell you exactly where the ball was. So when we did this one day and we were just sitting there looking at the park. So he, he pursued it. And he got exactly the spot. And uh, then they painted the seat red. And, uh, but um, that, that was one of the, that's certainly one of the best balls I hit. But everything was with me, and I got it in the air, and I hit it real good, and the wind was blowing out, and he just kept going. <laughs> and Freddie Hutchinson was so mad. Ooh. <laughs> I'll bet he was mad. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable great. that a man can hit the ball. Yeah, that far. I know he's a great guy. Yeah, he he really was. Yeah. Okay, why did you pick uh, Junior for your first award, uh, your hitter of the year award? Well, we were we just had to. Here's a young kid that I saw him in the All Star game, the first All Star game I ever saw him play in, and the first time up, he hit a line drive, low line drive into left center, center left center, and boy was I impressed the way he hit that ball. And, uh, of course, he just started going from there. He just started to blossom all the way. And um, I'm really, really happy for him because his dad was one of the best-liked players. And I didn't even know him, but I knew he was well-liked. And when he said anything, he had a great smile. And uh, then this kid coming along, I can't think of anything that uh, is, is greater than to see your own kid excel in a sport that you played in. And uh, he certainly is excelling. And, and I, I hear more people talk about his hitting, although the other kid is hitting like hell, too, Bobby Bond. But they say more about Ken Griffey. Uh, Bond has got tremendous talent. But uh, Ken Griffey, geez, tough. <laughs> I got on tape, and one of my favorite interviews was the one you did last year with Costas. I thought it was a classic. Oh, Costas? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... and uh, your reaction to what everybody has asked you, you've often been quoted as uh, wanting to be known as the best damn hitter who ever lived. And, yeah. and I thought your your answer was uh, really great. Uh, if you can, I, as you went through all your records, you said, I don't know, but I know I was one of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I always said, most of the time I've always said that, that, and I've kept real track of all the hitters because that was my great greatest interest in the game. And I've seen them, and I've looked at them, I've studied them, and I've talked to them, and I've asked them. And I want to tell you that the, the, my, my final answer would have to be that, it, well, I, I can't say in my own mind, honestly, that I think I was the best hitter. But I said, if they'll put me in a group of Ruth and Gehrig and Simmons and Fox and DiMaggio and Greenberg and Heilman and Cobb, I said... That'll be good enough for me. And uh, I think that uh, that's the way I really feel. Uh, all those guys, you know, uh, were the best, that's all. 
<laughs> and you were probably the best of the best. Uh, well, I don't know about that <clears throat> at all, but I do know that I had a great I had a great time uh, 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 writing this book with Jim Prime, the Twenty Greatest Hitters. And I'll tell you, that's a tough assignment. I thought, hell, we'll name them off. You can name the first ten or twelve pretty good, but now you got a group of about twenty in there that's tough, mm-hmm. and you really got to separate them analytically as, as just with every aspect. And the big thing about it is they got a formula now that 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 includes percentage of times on base, and that is a very, very, very big uh, factor. And of course, the slugging percentage is a very, very, very big factor. One of the uh, one of the great pieces of sports journalism, I think, is uh, John Updike's story about. Oh, there's no question about it. Last at bat about God, don't answer curtain calls. I was just wondering. When you rounded the bases, your last at bat, you had hit that home run. You went back to the clubhouse. What did you do then? What was going through your mind then? Well, I, I was, uh, the, the guys were all telling me to take a bow or do something, and I just couldn't do that. I pretty near thought about tipping my hat, but I didn't. I was emotionally, uh, you know, uplifted a little bit. And, uh, but I never, I would never come close to doing it, but I thought about it. And, but when I went back to the clubhouse, I mean, I went out to go out the next inning, and then he sent somebody out behind me, and I came in. But, um, um, you know, I'm pretty lucky to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Memorial Day is Monday. You served in uh, both World War II and Korea. You lost a lot of your baseball career, by the way, but maybe even a shot at the then-record 714 home runs. But uh, what, what does Memorial Day mean to you about serving your country? Well... Uh, I I'm patriotic and I but I'm not uh, uh, oh I'm not Mickey Mouse about it where I'm gushy but um, uh, I'm I look back now and I say well I'm glad I had a chance to do that uh, it's an experience that you'd never want to think that you could have it happen and then after it's all over and you didn't really appreciate until it was all over that you were a lucky guy to get through all the everything that happens to a young player everything that happens to anybody going to the service uh, anything that happens through life uh, especially during a war too I'll tell you you got to be lucky mm-hmm. when you enter the Hall of Fame uh, the things you said uh, one of the things you said uh, was it was time that some of the great players from the Negro League should yep. be yep. Yep. in Cooperstown that was, as well that was ingrained in my mind uh, way back in 1930, 31, 32, uh, 34, I, I played in high school. His name was Leo Thompson, and he lived in the littlest and simplest of a little house that I ever saw in San Diego in that area that I lived at. And he was a tremendous little athlete. He wasn't a very big guy, but he was a good athlete. Hell of a little ball player, good little football player, good little boxer, and I, I always, I've asked a hundred times when I've been back to San Diego about does anybody ever know what happened to Leo Thompson? And and I don't I don't uh, know what ever happened to him, but I've asked, and uh, it'd be fun to kind of find out. But he must be an old guy now, like I am, and so you never know. Maybe he wasn't a war. Maybe he had a problem or something. But um, so I've always felt in my heart uh, uh, maybe a little more thoughtfulness 
and regarding uh, uh, people that uh, didn't have quite the chance that other people had. Mm -hmm. And still, maybe that's one of the reasons I get even a little more bitter when I see riots right, and that type of thing. And I get mad to think that, uh, you know, uh, that things like that happen. But that was a thing that I had ingrained in me a long, long time. Ted, uh, you won a couple of triple crowns in 42-47, yet neither time uh, did you win the MVP award, last man to hit 400. Oh, yeah. uh, what happened? Well, you know, I, I don't know what happened. One time, uh, what was it, 40, 40, what, two? Yeah. Well, Gordon had the best year he ever had in his life. Yankees won the pennant, and they used to put even more more uh, strength on that when they voted for the most valuable player. And uh, and that's possible, certainly, to win the most valuable player without, win the tr without winning uh, uh, the pennant. I mean, it's possible to be most valuable player without winning the pennant. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I felt that Gordon, I thought that Gordon, being the... Uh, the he was a hell of a player should be in the Hall of Fame. Jeez, right? And uh, and of course, when I didn't get it, uh, when I hit 400, the Maggio had one of the super great years in the history of the game, and he was truly a great, great, great ball player. Yeah. And uh, and then the other time, I don't know the other time. Which one's the other time you're talking about? 42 and 47. Huh? 1947. 47. Yeah. Did you win the Triple Crown in 47? Uh, 42 and 47? Yeah. 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 Okay. But I, I don't even know who got it in 47. Who got it? Joe Man DiMaggio. DiMaggio. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I never felt badly <laughs> about his the, the, the year he won the a streak and the year that he won the most valuable player. I wouldn't argue against either one of those. Okay. Now, I want to get you, I want to get your comments, and you read the papers every day. You know what has happened to this game. You know what happened August the 12th last year. You know the resentment that the fans have had. You know that uh, attendance is down 25%, TV ratings are down, and they say it's a dying sport. Uh, uh, how about your perspective on the game today, and what can be done to rejuvenate it? Well, I, I don't think it's a dying sport at all, and I tell you, um, I can, I can, I can feel I, because I had the same feeling. I said, "What the hell is going on? What do they want? What does management want? What do the players want?" They have representation, and I still feel badly they couldn't get together on it a little better because they, the, the end result was that a lot of fans got turned off a little bit. But this game is so great. This game is so great that. Um, uh, it'll get it'll get going just the way it was. I'll bet you, and it, and it'll take a little bit of time because uh, the 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 present player uh, excites the fan to the point where he wants to go to the game. The name that's being created that's a great player or an outstanding player or or uh, a stimulation to a city and a and a and a uh, locality starts getting the fans worked up and i think that guys like bonds and guys like griffey and guys like that big i think that big hitting third baseman out there matt williams huh matt williams with the giant oh yes sir boy does he rack them and uh then you got other guys gee there's a lot of i see more talent honestly honestly i see more talent i think than i've ever seen in this game before 
I mean, I see catches at Cripe. I never saw catches like that. Even, you know, they go straight out and 10, 12 feet and catch one right off the grass. Yeah, that's I true. I see things like, I see speed. I see uh, bodies that uh, are super and talent that's super. And uh, it just shows you that this is a pretty t- pretty hard game to play the way you'd really like to play it. Who was the uh, who was the first manager that uh, used the uh, William shift on you, and uh, how did you react to it? How did you attack it? Well, I was hitting just like gangbusters. Boy, I was hitting the ball all over the place. And it was against Cleveland, and I had just won the first game in the 11th inning with a home run. And I was hitting like gangbusters all year, and then when I came out in the second game, they had all kinds of graphs and all kinds of charts to where I hit the ball <laughs> and where I didn't hit the ball and who I hit it against and and um, uh, he came out that second game with Boudreaux, a great player and a great manager in my book because uh, he handled the staff all year and, and he won the most valuable player award. I think that's probably one of the most uh, complete years anybody in baseball ever had because he not only managed, he hit great and he fielded great and he just carried the whole thing. And I don't think there's ever a player that had a more complete year than he did. How many times in your career were you asked to bunt, or did you ever? Oh, I never got the bunt sign. Never. Never. <laughs> you never sacrificed? No, I never got no bunt signs. No, I never got a bunt sign. <laughs> never did. Oh, mercy. I never got a steal sign. The only time I ever <laughs> tried to steal, and surprisingly, I think I stole about 35 bases. And, 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 uh, I I never stole. I never got a steal sign. But I, if I got hit with a ball or something, I'd be mad, you know. Then I'd try to do it. And uh, that's what I must have done, most of them, because I never stole any other time. Would you have done anything differently? I don't know what I could have done differently. I, they asked me. They asked me that the last day I played. And the only thing I said, and I know I was right when I said it, I'd have tried to get stronger. Now I'm taking. I, you know, I broke my shoulder, and I'm taking a lot of rehabilitation to try to get it going again. And I know that um, that exercise is all important, and you can develop stronger shoulders and develop stronger arms, and you can even help your speed with the right kind of training. And I, uh, I never realized that so much because uh, until I've had to go through things. And I did say the last day, I said, if, if, if I did anything different, I'd try to get stronger. And I know that's right. Uh, finally. Uh, I would say now, I would add one other thing. I'd say quickness uh-huh. is stronger. Because uh-huh. you're, till the last time you go to bat, you say, I got to be quick. I got to, and I got to hang in here, you know, uh, which is... Uh, is it true that your eyesight was so good you could literally see the seams on the baseball? Yeah, oh, geez, I want to <laughs> vomit when I hear that. Is that right? Probably some sports writer thought that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mercy. I, oh, I, Jesus, uh, <clears throat> you can't see no seams on the ball. It looks a little reddish, and but it's spinning, and it's coming in there fast. Hell no. I <laughs> must have been a frustrated sports writer that couldn't hit. <laughs> And, and also, you know, you've heard this story, too. I, and huh? I, 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 you've heard this comment, too, and I've even used it on the air in talking about you, uh, about when you were managing both Washington and Texas, that uh, you hated your own pitchers as much as any other pitcher. Is that true? <laughs> no. <laughs> in fact, some of the best friends I've ever had uh, have uh, were, were pitching on that team. Boy, 
I'd like to see how good we could do today with that team we had because it was a lot better team than anybody thought it was. Uh-huh. And we started to roll a little bit, and, hell, we were playing the last week of the season trying to beat the Red Sox out of position in the pennant race. Yeah. Not for first place, but for one, two, three, uh, three, four, five. My finally, my partner on television is uh, is Red is Ron Fairley. Uh, what kind of a hitter was Ron? Ron was a a great looking hitter. He uh, he reminded me he wasn't that big. I didn't think. What is he five ten and one hundred and seventy five? Yeah. yeah, not now, right. but he used to be one hundred and seventy five. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but he was a good looking hitter, and I used to I used to look at him, and even though I didn't play very much against him, I looked at him, and all I could think about was O'Doul, Lefty O'Doul. He was a stylish-looking hitter and a damn good one. Uh-huh. Well, I'll tell you. And, and finally, this, just for my own personal edification, I've got a lot of your memorabilia because you... My, my, if my daughter had been a son, she would have been a Ted Williams Kneehouse, by the way. <laughs> uh, but, but I have in my uh, game room in my den, and I'm sure there are thousands of them across America, that picture of you wrapped in the towel at Fenway Park with, your, with, with a bat in your hand. What year was that? Oh, it was... Uh, I'm going to say... Uh, I'm going to say... Uh, Oh, I, I I would think that it would be in in uh, thirty nine or forty, uh-huh. maybe. Yeah, I'm wrapping the towel, and Christ, I got a bat holding in the locker room. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and then they got another one of me holding a bat, and the uh, f- at the foot of a bed, and now I'm going to hit the the leg on the bed. You know, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Well, I did t- have a bat in my hand an awful lot. One of these days I'm going to get that to you and have you all. But I'll, I'll, I'll have a chance to sit down with you. Hey, Ted, you don't know what a thrill this is, my oh, friend. Oh, thank you and- very much. You're a good guy. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.